Living Room Logic. So welcome back to another episode of Living Room Logic. And we've been covering a lot of really interesting stuff so far this season, a lot of things like psychology and a lot of ways to improve our life. But one thing that we do every single day that we don't consider probably enough is what we put into our body and the best way to think about it and be educated on it to know how to best fulfill our diet. And I think a big part of that is trying to understand how the way food gets processed before it actually gets to us so we can make more informed choices. In order to discuss this and to learn about it today, I'm very, very happy to talk to Professor Alan Kelly. He's a professor uh, in the School of Food and Nutritional Science in the University College Cork, but I actually know him more so from Twitter puns, which is where I more often see him, and a few books that I've scanned looking at science communication, which, as everyone knows, is very important to me and I find very, very interesting. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to you. But I think we'll dive straight in because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the phrase processed food, and I'd like to address that straight away because when I think of processed food, I think of chicken nuggets, which are chicken nuggets, but the whatever aspect that was chicken has been completely changed. And somehow we're being told that it just resembles meat, but we're not too sure. And when I hear processed food, I also think that's not healthy. I think that less processed food is better and that processed food is actually worse. But is this right? Like, I'm not 100% sure. Is this idea of processed food wrong? And if you were going to talk about processed food, how would you do it? Great. And and first of all, thanks for the invitation to, to be on the podcast. I'm delighted to have an opportunity to to, to talk about these issues and, and really important issues. And and let me say from the upfront, I'm, I'm coming at this. I'm a food scientist. I guess I'm not a nutritionist. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to come at it from a very different perspective, maybe on what the word processing and process means, mm-hmm. because I think to, to me, it, it has a very different connotation. And, and I think, and we could say, you know, some of this is about semantics, but I, I think there, it's important to ask, what do we do to food before it gets to consumers and why do we do it? And I think that's kind of the, the, underpinning, the, under, the, the underpinning question. So what I'd, I'd like to do is kind of go right back in and, and figure out what do we do to the raw materials that we turn into food and why do we do them? And, and then where has that brought us to today that this, you know, that, that we have concern around what, processing means or what the term process means so like i'd start off by saying like every food material more or less is some kind of a has a biological origin right they're all complex biological systems they're 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 plant materials they're animal materials they're cereals and and by definition that makes them makes them um um unstable in some way or another and and in a way like we've selected over millennia we selected these are things we're going to eat you know, I think it's, I study milk and I think it's interesting to, to remind ourselves every now and again, that milk is the only thing that was designed by nature to be consumed. Everything else yeah. is something that we've made a decision we're going to consume, yeah. you know, um, and, and, and we've made those decisions over a very long period of time, right? But, but like everything we consume is because it's nutritious for us. And one of the kind of unavoidable facts is what makes it una- suitable for us in many cases makes it attractive to things which could cause us problems particularly microorganisms right so so you know if we look at food under a microscope if we look at most food raw materials you know they're they're literally uh thriving with life of one form or another either coming from where we got it from or or, or coming from contamination and over thousands of years we figured out that for food 
to be good for us to eat, to be safe, to be stable, to be able to transport it, we've had to transform it in one way or another. And that's what processing means to me is transformation. It's transformation of the state of it or the stability of it. Or number one, I think something that doesn't come out often enough in conversations about this is safety. And the number one reason we do things is, is, is to make our food safe to eat, right? So I'm going to go back. Like, I mean, we could go all the way back. There was an interesting guy from Harvard, I think, called Richard Rangham, who wrote a book about 10 or more years ago called Catching Fire. And he had a hypothesis that one of the key steps in the evolution of modern humans was the ability to cook our food. Because basically, you know, uh, we're the only species who, who cooks our food before we consume it. And as a result, if we consumed only raw, raw food, whether it be uh, raw vegetables or raw meat, we would spend a huge amount of our bodily energy budget digesting. Whereas by cooking it, we basically make it much easier to digest and absorb nutrients from. And as a result, his hypothesis was discovering somewhere, you know, millions or hundreds of thousands of years ago, human ancestors discovering how to cook their food suddenly was a revolutionary step and an evolutionary step in terms of of letting them, you know, save a huge amount of energy that they could devote to to evolving into modern humans. So, but if you go back then, you know, if you you, you speed up that, that, like I've gone right back to the dawn of civilization, which is <laughs> a big canvas to work from, but <laughs> you speed it up. So, you know, I'm not going to go through it in real time, but if we speed up a couple of, you know, millennia, we get to milk, meat, basic things that we learned to convert. And there's another theory out there that says that like learning how to process food, and I'll define what I mean by that in a second, was key to the evolution of cities. Because if if you weren't able to make food safe and make food last longer, because most food is inherently very perishable, then everybody would have to live on farms and everyone would have to live where the food was, was, was produced because they'd have to consume it almost immediately. Whereas the ability to make things last longer meant that they could be transported and people could have cities because not everybody had to be a farmer. Because somebody, you could divide mm. civilization into people who made the food and people who consumed food and did other things as well. And um, also like exploration and travel. Like if you weren't able to bring food with you, you know, it, it limited your ability to move. So like going right through history, the ability to do things to food, to, to transform it in one way or another was was very, very important, right? And, and when I go back to what do I mean by that? I mean... People have been doing the things we associate with, the, you know, modern food processing for, for a very, very long time, like cooking and then heating in one way or another, right? Refrigeration, keeping things cool, you know, building cellars or underground compartments where the temperatures were lowered to make things last. Drying, like it's thought, you know, again, historians will argue that Incas in, in Peru basically knew how to freeze dry food. Because they they put it up on, on mountains where the pressure was quite low and at night it would be very cold and it, it would freeze. And in the morning as it warmed up at low pressures, basically the water would evaporate. You know, people have dried food, you know, uh, to make it last longer for a very long time. And, and you know, so, so some of our most basic food preservation techniques, drying, heating, cooling, have been around for a very long time. But the most kind of maybe one that's been with us for a very long time has been chemical preservation. 
And like there's there's one we maybe could confront head on, you know, and we could say, okay, there's one thing that that consumers are always worried about. They talk about chemical preservatives in food. But some of our oldest ways of preserving food have been chemical preservation techniques. And some of our most fundamental and common food ingredients, although we don't think of them that way, are chemical preservatives. I mean, one which has been around for a very long time and has had a massive value through history is salt for exactly that reason. I mean, it amuses me sometimes you see products like, I know I've seen products like cheese alternatives, like um, for vegans. And on the front, it'll frequently say, contains no preservatives. And I always look at the back and I see about second or third in the list will be salt. It's not just a flavor. It's there as a preserve. Salt, acid, whether we're pickling and adding acid, whether we are uh, fermenting it, right? Again, fermentation has been something that's been done for, for a very, very long time. Like, you know, uh, yogurt, cheese, you know, a lot of these products, wine, beer, are ancient. They go back to Greek, uh, Greek and Roman civilization and further because there are ways to preserve the raw materials. We've no idea, but in, you're deferring you know, deterring the growth of undesirable microbes by filling your food with desirable ones. And typically in the process, they were producing things that were, um, that, that had a preservative effect, like alcohol, for example. When we, when we produce, I mean, home fermentation to produce is, is very in trend nowadays, you know, but that, that's a very ancient, ancient technique as well. Um, smoking has been done for a very long time. Again, a very powerful chemical preservation technique. Uh, Sugar. Sugar, again, we associate with... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. With, with um, maybe nutritional uh, prospects and sweetness and sensory prospects, but sugar is a very powerful preservative. If you have bacterial cells and the presence of sugar tends to suck the water out of them, which helps to kill them. Uh, and, and then we have the most powerful chemical preservative of all which is one that's been in food for a very long time, which is um, alcohol and produced by fermentation. So, so, you know, many of our major food kind of categories emerged because of how to solve the problem of making food that won't kill you and that lasts long enough to, that you can bring it from place to place and that you can transport it. And like, I mean, if you look at, say, if I could take one example, you take milk, right? Milk. I mean, every dairy product is a different solution to the problem of how do you make milk stable. I mean, in Ireland, they've been making butter from milk and and uh, and burying it in bogs for, for mysterious reasons uh, for, for thousands of years. I mean, archaeologists frequently dig up four or five thousand year old samples of bog butter, as we call it around Ireland. But like, I mean, it's taking milk and preserving. Like one of the things we want from food is energy. And one of the most energy rich parts of food is the fat, right? So, you know, thousands of years ago, people in Ireland and elsewhere figured out that if you want to preserve that, you know, during the winter, during times of plenty or times of uh, the opposite of plenty, whatever that might be, um, you know, one way was to dehydrate it, salt it and, and concentrate. And that's why we make butter. You, you take 
cheese and it's 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 dehydrated it's it's fermented it's acidified and it's salted you know and and it's funny you can take like uh, so many food products emerge because we're taking these kind of there's only a certain number of basic processing principles and if we put them together in certain ways then we get uh we, we get different dairy products for example you know we dry it we pasteurize it you know so or we freeze it and we make ice cream. They're all different ways of approaching the task of, of how do we make milk? How do we make it transportable? So, you know, I think that like, like basically um, processing has been around for a very long time. It's been with us through civilization. It's not something that the, the food industry has suddenly decided to spring on us <laughs> nefariously. It's, it's, uh, but one thing that I'm sure has, you know, has, has caught your attention and your listeners' attention is, okay, I've mentioned a few things in there as being around for a very long time. I've measured salt and sugar and fat. And when you talk about the types of processed food you, 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 you think about, you often think about, you know, okay, they're negatives. They're things that we might associate. This is cheap food with too much sugar in it, or it's too salty, or it's too high in fat, mm-hmm. right? And you can say now, like, that that what's changed is is our understanding that these ancient things we've relied on for a very long time like our understanding of nutrition our understanding of physiology is so much better than it was so you know the idea of you know oh we'll make it stable by just throwing in a lot of acid or throwing in a load of salt we now know okay there's limits to how much we could do that so processing is becoming is is kind of we're we're kind of modifying and refining things as we go along you know based on our understanding of you know these things just because they've been done for a long time we could do them better you know we can we make food in an extremely hygienic environment so maybe we don't need all these preservation steps to reapply to them so i think food is 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 evolving very rapidly in recent years in in response to to both consumer demands and 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 better nutritional understanding of of what's good for us and and what might be too much of a good thing if you want to put it in those yeah that's yeah that is a fantastic foundation to start this conversation it is a thank you so much that's brilliant that's brilliant i the first thing i want to pull out of that that you mentioned was something that never in my life crossed my mind was that milk was the only thing designed by nature to be eaten yeah that that alone uh, had me sit back for a second and go oh my god everything else is just trying to go about its business Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah That's yeah. amazing, and, and I'm on. And it got my head thinking. Wow, we must have learned so much about new, like how food is both made and how nutrition is balanced from something that nature has created just to be eaten. So that must be, that's fascinating. And then even going into that, we give so much credit to the agricultural revolution for civilizing humans. But like you said, that only goes so far. Maybe that made it so you could have a, a homestead that you had a farm that fed that. But this created, like you said, farms from elsewhere that would bring it in. But like you kept getting onto, this has been around for a long, long, long time. But what I would say is that this is all familiar ways of processing food. Yeah. Very familiar. Salt mm-hmm. doesn't bother me. I've, everything in my life has had salt in it, you know, to some degree. And, and same with alcohol. It's, it's not a big deal. It's very normalized. But again, we may be optimizing it, but optimizing usually means new techniques and unfamiliar techniques and maybe introducing compounds without a proven history of being okay. 
So how do you how do you think about that when you're introducing something brand new that may maybe on the lab floor it does a much more effect like it could be a different kind of salt than our classic sodium you know it could be something like that but it does a twice as good a job it keeps food twice as well or anything like that and trying to then say that to someone and be like no no it is safe it's just new because i think a lot of this um maybe stigma or your instinct to pull back comes from how unfamiliar new processes is because like you said everything you said there is totally good yeah smoke smoking stuff uh freezing stuff drying stuff yeah totally cool i i've seen that in movies all my life but i've never seen uh food crashing through a factory and being processed <laughs> in bulk that's not what i'd call a classic that's not classically natural you know <laughs> but i think something that's really important to say and i think you you've raised a really important point is that that there is a suspicion and and you know i'm not going to i'm not here to defend or attack the practices of the food industry or to get into to those kind of arguments but like i think it's really important that people have a confidence that food is one of the most regulated parts of our daily lives and it's extremely regulated at an eu level and at an irish level if you go on to news sites you know in the rte or the journal you'll regularly see such and such premises shut down for for lack of standards say by the fsai we have really because it's you know food food is like that that you know if there's a problem with food it can it can affect a lot of people yeah. very quickly and that's why but just to go back to your and it's a really interesting point so what if somebody invented something in the morning one i often think of is that has every single property of milk fat except it has zero calories you know it is every does everything else yeah. could they just launch that onto the market and and the, the simple answer is no it would take them years to do that because we have there, there are very strict criteria in the eu for what are called novel foods so say if there's a, a process or an ingredient or, or a raw material you know they find some bacteria down at the bottom of the deep sea that they want to use to produce a new kind of beer or something right the key word is no history of safe use mm. that a company who wants to do that and there are lots of examples mainly i'm familiar with them through processing and maybe we can we can take that example in a minute but that that you know a company that wants to pr- produce something will have to produce a dossier of evidence and they'll have to examine that process or that ingredient or that microbe from every possible conceivable angle to convince the EU that this is um, that, that this is is uh, safe to use. So I think it's really important that it's not a free for all. I think sometimes people think you know the food industry can just invent things or labs can invent things and throw them onto the market without protection. That's absolutely not the case, at least not in the EU. Like if I could pick one example, because you know something we might be interested to talk about is novel technologies and new mm. technologies, right? And and one of the big drivers, because I think if we look at the drivers of of um, how food is evolving, if you like. And it's evolving pretty fast. Like you've two different things, like you've co- what consumers want and you've what the food industry can give them, you know, and, and how they meet in the middle, right? And and like one of the biggest kind of terms in food processing for probably 20 years has been what's called minimal processing. And it's tackling ha- head-on consumers' concerns about, about um, um uh, the idea that their food is overprocessed, and a kind of a watchword being, how can we make food that that has that is as close to the natural 
unprocessed version as possible, while still meeting our absolute requirement, the requirement of anybody who's involved in producing or handling food, of, of making it safe. And I keep coming back to that one because I think it just gets lost in the debate sometimes. Like whether you're, you know, making dinner at home for friends, whether you're running a restaurant or whether you're running a, a farmhouse cheese or a massive factory, the first responsibility is if you're giving people food to eat, it has to be safe, right? So, so you, you can't get away from safety. It has to be, and everything else is a bonus once it's safe. But like, so a huge kind of a, is how can we, how can we make food that seems as fresh and as natural as possible? How can we change as little as possible while making it safe? And there's so much, like I often, I'll, I'll take two examples. Like one is, is um, um, you go into the supermarket and you buy a bag of salad, right? Mm-hmm. And like for most people, there's a bag of salad and they bring it home and they open it. It's a plastic bag with air in it. And that's what you, what you see. But to a food scientist, when you look at that, you know, like, first of all, it's not air because air isn't going to, it'll, it will be everything that's in air. It'll be nitrogen and carbon dioxide and oxygen, but the ratios will be very carefully chosen to make sure it stays, retains its color and its quality and everything. Uh, and the, the plastic will be very carefully chosen to make sure it protects the product and, and lets kind of the right gases and humidity and things in and out. So, you know, every aspect of food is, is very carefully chosen to make sure it's as safe as possible. And often we don't appreciate or don't kind of realize what we're seeing. But the, the other example I want to talk about, because it links to the, the, the regulation issue, is, is sometimes you might see on the, on the market, I saw it the other day in Dunn stores, like um, kind of high-end um, juices. And you'll often see the term cold-pressed juice. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, what that is, is produced and sometimes it just means how the juice is extracted. But more often what it means is, is instead of being heated to make it stable, right, which does make it stable and will kill bacteria and will kill yeast and molds and make it last longer, but might impact on the, the flavor and the nutritional quality that it's been subjected to a process where it's put into a, into a bottle, probably the bottle you're buying it in. And it's been put in a chamber where it's subjected to massive pressures instead of heat. And, and this is a fascinating process because it does the good stuff that heat does, which is killing the bacteria and making it safe and making it last longer, but it doesn't impact on the nutritional and sensory quality. And, and so we go around the, the, the country and you can see, you know, you can see on shop shelves, cold pressed juice, and it'll say produced using, using high pressures. And what's like, if you go back about 20 to mid 1990s, the first company, a big food company wanted to use this, spent years trying to persuade the EU that this is safe to use because they were the first people to want to use that process. And then and that was for fruit. And then uh, the next company who came along who wanted to use it in Spain, then it was launched for, um, the first application was in France for fruit. Second application was in Spain for meat. And it was a little bit easier because it had been shown it was safe for, for, for fruit, but they still had showed there was no negative impact on the meat. And today, 20, 25 years afterwards, it's more or less an accepted technology. But that's a technology that had to fight its case before consumers were able to 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 get access to those products because it had to be proven that this yeah. is that this is safe. So, and you know, that's an important point and it's a nice illustration of the fact that it's not just an unregulated, you know, companies can do whatever they want. It's a highly, highly regulated. And unless, you know, and it's the same if it's, if it's you know, the salt that isn't salty or the fat that isn't fatty, yeah. whatever it might be, we'll have to go through exactly the same process. 
halfway through when you were talking, I just started picturing supermarkets more like pharmacies that everything rather everything almost has gone through a similar process. Every, yeah. every aspect of it has gone through it. And I, 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 it makes me keep thinking because I think a lot of people would almost assume that it doesn't. And they would assume that because it's natural and natural things don't need to be tested. And if you're throwing natural on a cover, it doesn't need to be tested. And for me, it gives me a sense of relief. Oh, great. Everything is, they make, they make sure. But I don't know if everyone else would. I think some people would be like, why did it have to get tested? That's concerning, <laughs> you know. Even though it's like, well, it got. It's like, why did fire get tested in case it hurts you? You know, you you prefer to have these things tested and a big stamp of approval that just says yes, this is safe. But I think a lot of people have this kind of image of if something had to go through safety testing, it must inherently have some assumption that it's dangerous. But I th- I think it should be a reassuring. I never thought about it that way. It should be a reassurance that that nothing is that we don't have access or we don't be subjected to anything that isn't shown to be safe, you know, but it'd be the same for anything. It'd be the same for any material, whether it be food or a, a new drug or, or a vaccine or, or anything. Yeah. You know, we'd like to have the confidence it's been through rigorous safety tests. So I, yeah, no, I, I, I completely, completely agree. I just, I have this image in my head of, of someone taking something uh, as simple as salt in lab coats and masks and testing it like it's, it's an explosive and then saying it's safe. <laughs> but I, I just, I, from my own experience, I know that some people have this image in their head that anything that needs safety testing has inherently risk, which isn't necessarily the truth. And I think it's important to make that point. Uh, in that, in that, I think for another stage of you were saying about keeping something as natural as possible. And I think that's another interesting point of how much processing, like, like how much saying, I think even the phrase from this conversation, something which is highly processed doesn't mean a lot. It just means that something is being maintained or kept. Uh, from going off for a longer time. But is there any sense that if something ha- if something needs a higher degree of maybe processing or needing some kind of um, preservatives, that this pulls away from its maybe natural safety or anything like that? Again, what are we trying to do? We're trying to make things safe and we're trying to make them last longer, right? And you have two kind of routes to doing it that we've kind of touched on already. And again, these aren't new. This is this, yeah. this, this is ancient stuff. That like one is what we do to it. Whether we heat it or we dry it or we you know freeze it or we refrigerate it, and the other is to do with what we put into it. You know how we formulate it. You know that that you know do we so? And I think a lot of the debate around processed food tends to be around the what we put into the food rather than what we do to yeah. it. And and I think that's important. And, and can I just go back to the it, like? It, it, the point about making things last longer, it can sound a little bit kind of cosmetic or, you know, mm. just make food last longer, you know, shelf life. But I think it's really important. I always think like, if we just think about why is shelf life good for us? I mean, shelf life is really important. It's really important to food food industry. And by industry, I use this in the broadest sense, because to me, like, you know, if if you process something in a, in a, you know, if you open a recipe book and you see a list of ingredients and a list of steps, like 
doing it in a larger scale, whether it be a farmhouse or a factory, it's pretty much the same thing. Yes. It's a question of scale. And in one case, you put it in a package and the other you put it on a plate. You know, to me, the, mm. the principles, the chemistry, the interactions, the reasons you're doing things are exactly the same mm. on whatever scale. And and like I have a, as a scientist, and, you know, I know I can get into lots of rows about this, but like I have a deep kind of concern about this idea that if it comes out of a kitchen, it's good. And if it comes out of a factory, it's bad. Mm. Because food isn't like that. Food is food. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. But anyway, I go back to I go back to the point about shelf life and I just think like Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Shelf life is really important. That food industry knows how to make things last longer is the reason why, you know, on a modern lifestyle, you don't have to go to shop every day. You know, because you can buy things that know that they're going to last for long enough. And the other the, the other side of that is if we go into our supermarket, we go to wherever we're buying our food. Like the fact that we have access to food from all over the world is because the food industry has figured out how to make it last longer and get it to us in Cork or Limerick or Dublin, whoever we are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yes. So, so, it, so preservation, the preservation side of it is, is gives us convenience. It gives us it gives us variety. It gives us interest, gives us exposure to things, you know, and as I say, like it, that can be achieved by two things, the physical processes like drying and heating and things and the formulations. But again, I go back to the idea that, that while these are very ancient ideas, we understand better now how to do them. Mm-hmm. We know better how to, how to get the best quality raw materials, how to, how to minimize that processing, how to avoid sometimes unsubtle things we might have done in the past. To, to make things that are healthier. And I think th- things are improving all the time. You know, uh, I would like to think that, yeah. that that's that food science and nutritional science working together to understand, you know, what's the minimum we need to do to make something safe and stable so and, you, and yet preserve its nutritional value and, and its goodness. I think, sure. I think that's, that these are really big drivers that, that people mightn't always appreciate are, are big trends. You know, it, it's not the food industry doesn't listen to and, you know, what consumers are looking for. Because obviously if, if you know, if consumers don't want what, what people are producing, then that, that's not that's not gonna be good for, for, for those producers, you know? For sure. And so do you think that really the best thing going forward from a public perception of food food processing is more so familiarization as opposed to just people being familiar that oh food processing is fine that's what we do it it doesn't matter if it's from a factory or a kitchen it's that familiarity because like like uh, my mom for example would say oh 
it tastes like real food. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean, and the idea. But maybe that's just a social yeah. uh, perception. So actually, and going forward, absolutely, there's a lot of of social, per- you know, and and social perceptions really important. Like I had a student of mine, Megan Ross, who's just submitted her PhD on on three D printing of food. And we were very excited as food scientists. I, I published a paper a number of years ago on 3D printing of cheese that got quite a bit of, of, of attention because mm. it was like, what are they doing trying to 3D print cheese, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we did a study and we were very excited as food scientists that we could show that milk proteins, you know, were good materials for printing things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if we just pick 3D printing as a futuristic technology, if you like, like it's like, you know, it's like it's building a house. You need um, bricks to build a house and you can decorate it with the flavors and nutrients you want afterwards. And so you need stuff that's good at making. And one of the great things about milk, as well as as the idea that it's the only thing that, that was designed to be food, is that it's it's a liquid that loves to become solids. Whether it becomes, you know, okay, yeah. cheese, cheese or, or butter or um uh, yogurt you know mm-hmm. so it, it's good and so we did these studies on showing how we could print cheese and print different dairy materials and then we went out and did as part of our, our thesis did did studies uh consumer studies and focus groups and surveys with people and we found that people were very suspicious of the idea of <laughs> and it was an important an important reminder for us you know yeah. that the science has to that the science and, and people's understanding of what things mean have to be uh have to be lined up you know what i mean or, yeah. or else it's not going to work so it's a, a, a timely reminder that the consumers um but like you know there are lots of there are lots of views out there there are people who will say you know if it's got more than five ingredients you should you should avoid it it should be bad you know it's mm. going to be bad for you but like an awful lot of products that are produced you know for for uh, different purposes, for particular for nutritional purposes, often have to have very long ingredient list. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are a lot of kind of arbitrary. Oh well, if it's got more than five steps of making it, that's not yeah. good. For you. It's got more than five ingredients, it's not good for you. But like in Ireland, like to take an example, like um, um, something that's very common that a lot of your listeners might be very familiar with is celiac disease. Mm-hmm. And like food science, including a lot of research done in UCC by my colleagues. Like you know, has has been at you've done great steps in bringing better products and improving the quality of the offerings to the present for celiacs. But that often requires very complex science to engineer a structure and a texture and, a, and an eating experience to replicate something that has gluten. In it. For sure, you know what I mean. So so um, you know, sometimes science is it, it solves. You know what science is about? Food science, no exceptions. It should be about solving problems. You know, yeah, and, and that's that's you know an example where food science has done a, a great job of of designing new kinds of products for people. Yeah. I mean, you take the rise of veganism, like some of the products which are available on the market for those who, who choose to pursue that lifestyle are astonishingly complex scientific products. You know, some of the the products that are being being um, you know, like the the Impossible Meat Burger, the Beyond Meat Burger, are very long, uh, very long yeah. ingredient list. To yeah. replicate the meat-like experience, you know, and took years of, of research. There, there are people who are trying to make milk now in, in, in line of veganism without using cows in fermenters. And yeah. like, this is really 21st century biotechnology t- to address some of these challenges that people people yeah. want. You know, so on the one hand, for, for some reasons, 
people kind of feel the food as, you know, we don't want science coming near our food. We don't want to yeah. get those molecules out of my yeah. food. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like, you know, you know, regularly surveys about, you know, we don't want chemicals in food. And to me, that's fine. But what's left? You know, yeah. <laughs> chemical, yeah, you know yeah. water, proteins, lipids, you know, yeah. chemicals. like, you know, every time you cook, like, like to me, like other interacting with food and handling food and cooking food is the most complex scientific thing we do every day other than being alive you know what i mean yes. like when, when you cook something you unleash a whole series of, of complex chemical reactions food isn't but yet there's a kind of a rejection of, of science but then yes. on the other hand you know people put demands like say you know having meat alternatives or milk alternatives which require enormously complex scientific solutions you know what i mean yes, so for there's, sure. a, there's a kind of a complex social place for science in the world of food at the moment absolutely just the idea oh i i'm uh thinking now of someone uh getting quite mad at even the comment of how vegetarian or vegan food may require a significant amount of uh science even just yeah. to build it and to make this something which is possible because it's inherently good but i don't know how much uh people in People with that diet would almost agree with the processing side of it. But again, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, that's the whole discussion. What I'd like to close on now and what I'd like the last thing is <laughs> we've talked a lot about how maybe familiarization has been very good. Would you have any warnings <laughs> of like what might be coming ahead in the world of food processing? Like 3D printing is a good one. It's very interesting. Is there anything else in, of the of the like to expect? No, I mean, I think that a lot of a lot of the core technologies that food industry used is like, you know, with with the rare exception like 3D print, and there are lots of other ones, like there's using electricity, using pulsed electric fields to to again kill bacteria without that. Because a lot of the kind of the drive is is to do the keep going back to do the basics, which should make it safe and make mm -hmm. it last longer. Mm -hmm. But try and avoid you see heat. Heat has been our go-to technology for thousands of years. Yeah. But heat is like a very blunt instrument. Yes. Because if you heat food, you kill bacteria, you know, you make it safe, you make it last longer, but you change the flavor, you change the color, you destroy nutrients. Yes. So the, 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 the big pursuit and the big trend has been trying to find technologies that do the good stuff of heat in terms of safety and stability, but avoid the negatives. Yes. Like I mentioned, the high-pressure treatment. But they're using electricity, using you know, pulsed uh, electric fields using like plasmas. There's a whole kind of science fiction almost. Uh, yeah. In fact, there's a big conference in, in Dublin later this year devoted to new technologies for for Because oh, cool. this has been a really Im Im important part of it. So I, I think it's, it's, it's like, a, you know, it's, it's this kind of conversation between what consumers want and then driving, okay, these are the demands for food. And there are a lot of conflicting demands at the moment because there's natural on the one hand there's healthy obviously yeah and on the other hand there could be demands for very specific types of food that require very complex solutions you know so, yes yeah. so i think very that fair. i think a lot of the, the the demand a lot of core technologies have been around for a long time i think what we're seeing more with the exceptions i mentioned a lot of the, the kind of complexity is coming in more in the formulation and the subtlety is you know how we put things together Mm -hmm. to make that burger or to make that, you know, that, that cheese alternative or to make that, you know, or to make that healthier, you know, uh, you know, less, 
But like if you go back to it, if you go back to my argument earlier on about chemical preservatives, I mean, it's funny how, how our basic tastes in it, like our, some of our most fundamental human characteristics around taste are for, are for chemical preservatives. You could like, you could, for acid, for salt, for sugar. You know, I never quite yeah. got my head around. If you think about it, we're kind of programmed a, and, and bitter, which is also obviously a, a flavor more related to probably detected toxins. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is interesting how we're almost programmed to detect things that have been in food for a very long time, for acid, sure. salt, and sugar. Yeah. The main function of which has been to protect us for a very, very long time, you know? So yeah. we're, we're engineered for chemical preservation. So. Yeah. Really, really cool. That abs- yeah, yeah, absolutely. What a brilliant conversation. I really love that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. It was really nice to chat. This is the end of the podcast We hope you enjoyed your time If you're feeling generous And you're not completely skinned Why don't you give us some of your money Join our Patreon Join our Patreon Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.